Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. What a busy programme we have in store for you tonight. Will we fit it all in? We'll do our best. Let's have a look and see what we've got. Oh, yeah. Aina Nilana is going to be telling us about the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland's annual plant hunt. Jim Wilson, he's in Cove. He met two young people who took part in the Young Scientist exhibition earlier this year. And Richard Collins will be sharing his philosophy on the world around us as the programme progresses. But in studio with me, we have Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan, and we're joined by our researcher, Michelle Brown, because Michelle has been going through all of the correspondence we receive every day on the programme, and she's just picked out a few that she thought you might find interesting. So, Michelle, Iverahane, and it has to do with the blue tit, very close to my heart, blue tits, cottage scale. Um... Catherine Natala sent in a video of blue tits. She says they're getting up to mischief in her garden and she sent us her matinee performance. <laughs> we'll have a look because it is a video. Now we're going to look at it now and you can look at it by visiting our website rte.ie forward slash Moody after the programme. But oh, as you can see there, there are blue tits in her garden, all right. And they seem to be attacking themselves. There's a mirror on what I assume is the party wall between Catherine's house and her neighbour next door. It's a big mirror and you can clearly see the blue tit at the base of the mirror. It's having a good look around and then it sees, oh my God, there's another bird. What's it doing in my territory? But it's actually seeing its own reflection and it's flying straight at it. It's giving it a headbutt. I assume now that's what's going on. It is, yes. I know it might seem like mischief. In fact, the birds aren't full of mischief. They're full of uh, fury, in fact, and it's actually quite distressing for them. So um, it's, yeah, what's happening is the birds, they're seeing their reflection in the mirror. It's coming towards the breeding season now. Uh, Breeding hormones are raging. They think that another bird has dared to invade their territory so they go to attack it and rather than take the hint and fly off their rival fights back with equal ferocity matching them blow for blow. It can actually drive the birds demented and can and can prevent them from nesting successfully. They can injure themselves quite badly. So I would urge everybody please don't put mirrors in your garden or if you have mirrors in your garden please cover them over with something during the nesting season a piece of cloth or something so that no... Uh, or put some hedges in front of them maybe perhaps. You know, well, yeah, but even I don't so, mean plant them but if you've got some in yeah. pots. So absolutely whatever would would obscure them but um, yeah honestly mirrors in gardens not a good idea from a bird. Oh so thank you for that Catherine and perhaps you might consider putting something in front of that mirror until the breeding season is over when the birds have fledged and that's really the end of August I hate to say it to you but anyway if you could we'd really appreciate it and so more importantly would the blue tits and other birds in your garden especially around now Michelle you have another one there um, Marion Manning from Glashine Road in Cork was on. She was listening back to our great Garden Bird Watch with Bird Watch Ireland on the 5th of February. And she wanted to say that she has two robins in her garden since last summer and there is no animosity between them. What? No animosity? No argy-bargy? No, you get off my patch? Niall, what's going on here? Could there be a pair? Presumably then throughout the winter they've coexisted. Yeah, they stay uh, together. Yeah. But, but, but the robins don't do that. So that's very interesting. So ah. um, you would expect the robins to, to be very aggressive towards each other as we were saying during the, the, the Great but Big Garden But if they're a pair, if they're a male and female, a couple. But they don't pair during the winter. So they go their separate ways after the breeding season. So it is unusual for two robins to, to happily coexist or cohabit during the winter months. So yeah, this is certainly very unusual. Uh, it, it could be that there's a super abundance of food in, in Marion's garden uh, which would mean that maybe the birds don't need to be quite so territorial but it is unusual certainly unusual 
Rachel from Harold's Cross was on saying that she would love some advice um, whether she's left it too late to trim back her hedges. There's so much birdsong in the garden I want to make sure I'm not going to interfere with any nests in progress. Well the law is very clear in relation to hedge cutting and it's on our website rte.ie forward slash money if you're ever in any doubt but Niall you're the representative of Birdwatch Ireland on Earth so you, t- <laughs> you tell us. Well okay so the law around hedge cutting so it is against the law to cut hedges between the 1st of March to the 31st of August so we're not yet in that hedge cutting period um, having said that if it's possible to leave the hedges I, I would because it could be that the birds are starting to nest you'd probably be pulling the rug out from underneath them because mm, they're already thinking ahead yeah. thinking there's insects there for my chicks in due course there's food and so on but also quite separate from that a completely different law it's also against the law to destroy the nest of any bird an active nest with eggs or chicks in it now, it's still quite early for that but there could well be birds like robins and blackbirds with, with eggs in the nests already uh, and quite apart from any ban on hedge cutting it would be against the law to destroy those those nests and by destroying you also order or disturbing them which is the other thing if you cut the hedge all of a sudden the nest is much closer to the exterior part it's much easier for predators like foxes and cats and rats to find them um, it's much more exposed to the elements and so on so if at all possible please don't cut the so hedges the dates again you so cannot cut your hedges between the 1st of March and the 31st of August now there are some exemptions there particularly for the for, for county the councils etc for, for road safety, road safety. Yeah. but um, but if you know we would we would say it's there for very good reason this ban to try and protect our nesting birds so please do adhere to it and one about otters Michelle yes Claire was walking down by the Liffey um, over the weekend and at the turn for the Sam Beckett Bridge she spotted two otters enjoying their breakfast about 8.30am and an unusually quiet town she wonders would they have come down from the Royal Canal and um, she was only listening to you talk about the otters in the Herbert Park yesterday and also uh, she was wondering if Terry had any update on those otters Terence Interesting that one on the the Liffey. They have been there before and they have been on that very, very same spot. And there is a fair possibility that they're coming down from the the Royal Canal because the, the canal enters into the Liffey just very, very close to that spot there. And otters are quite common on the canal. Now, common in the sense that you will see them if you go looking for them. I've seen a pair around Clonsillan. They've been there for the last year or two. And uh, yes, they they will move up and down because it is a linear habitat. Mm -hmm. And maybe they will move down to the sea, incoming tides, more food, variety of food. So, yeah, keep your eyes peeled and you will see them. And in relation to the otter in Mm -hmm. the pond in Herbert Park, we've been in touch with Gustavo Zolads. He's our man in the park there. And he informs me that although the otter hasn't been seen in the pond for the last week or two, it has been seen in the Dodder River right beside it, just about 100 metres away. If it's even 100 metres away, so it's still in the area, which is good news. Great news. Still alive. Okay, now, Terry, you've been out and about for us during the week. Yes, I was. I was up in Blanchestown. I met up with Hans Zommer of Global Action Plan, an organisation that strives to inspire people to become environmental change makers. They were founded in 1995 and Hans is the CEO and they are presently launching their Climate Heroes Challenge. Mm -hmm. This is a fun competition for everybody to reduce the carbon footprint. It's a theme-based challenge. It's free to enter. And it runs for two weeks in April. So on Friday last, I headed off to the TU campus in Blanchestown and I met with Hans in their oh, community garden. Yeah. Hi. Hi, how are you? 
God, Welcome. this is a fantastic garden you have here. Isn't it? Uh, and yeah. look at this polytunnel. Beautiful. Yeah, we got that actually just a couple of months ago, thanks to Fingo County Council. Well, tell uh, us exactly where we are. We're in uh, Glass at TU Dublin Community Garden. Yeah. So it's a small piece of land in the campus of the TU Dublin in their Blanchestown campus. Yes. And this is a community garden that we're operating here uh, with help of the university and Fingal County Council. Now you say we're happy, that's Global Action Plan. You're right, sorry, I should have started with that. <laughs> yes, Global Action Plan. We're an environmental behavior change organization. We're based in Balimon and we operate a community garden there. We have one here, but we also have programs ar around the country for community mm -hmm. groups and schools and businesses. And last year you started a totally new event. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, we have the Climate Heroes Challenge, which is our invitation to community groups and organizations all over Ireland to join a fun competition. It'll be in April, 15 to 26th of April. It's a competition where people can uh, try and win. Well, we're trying to turn everybody into a climate hero, basically to discover their power to make a significant change, to reduce their carbon footprint through really simple changes to our everyday habits now who are you hoping to entice into this competition or challenge everybody because really, yeah. yeah in our work we meet so many people and we can see that uh, most people they want to do the right thing they want to try and help fight climate change but they're overwhelmed and they're confused so what, what can i do you know that really makes a difference i can't afford electric car or solar panel so really what else can i do and you know i read in the paper and it's just confusing so i might as well do nothing because my neighbors aren't doing anything either nobody around me is seems to be too worried about climate change so i seem to be the only one now you and started this competition last year what did people do well the competition gives you 40 options of really small lifestyle changes that you can make and what it does is if, if you tick that you've done that, it converts that into a certain amount of CO2 saved. So it's a very tangible way for you to see the impact of the small actions that you take. And as a result, you're seeing that actually which actions are the most effective. And it encourages you to do more of that. So it helps you build uh, new habits and it helps you become a climate hero in that it you actually see how easy it is to make a significant difference. How uh, successful was it last year? Well, very. We had 68 community groups taking part. And on average, the participants reduced their carbon footprint by 20 to 30%. Which means that if everybody in Ireland were to do the same as those people who took part in the challenge, we could collectively reduce, and obviously they would have to keep it up for the whole 52 weeks, not just for the two weeks in the year. But with those, with those assumptions, we could argue that making small lifestyle changes, Ireland could reduce its carbon footprint by 20 to 30% without spending any money, with, just by simple changes to the everyday habits that we... Uh, That's a huge saving, isn't it? It's 20%. Yeah, and we've, we've run this competition once for community groups and uh, five times last year for, for businesses. And in all of the challenges, we've seen that people are amazed about the impact that they can have, the positive impact that they can have. What was the most impressive change that you saw? All of the, uh, the, the actions on our menu 
save carbon uh, and I don't want to give you the, which one that does the best <laughs> you know because <laughs> you have That's to discover enough. that as, as part of the challenge but what I can say there are all simple things like you know having a occasional vegetarian meal walking to to work or taking the public transport to work taking a shorter shower uh, reducing you know the mm -hmm. the heat in your house uh, turning off lights not boiling the kettle twice you know when you, you're trying yeah, to make yeah. a cup of tea and you come back those sort of things they actually add up enormously turning off your television at night not just putting it on standby but turning it off at night those sort of things when you add up how much uh, co2 each of those little actions uh, and of uh, course they will they will save you money as well exactly all the 40 actions on the on our menu or in, in the challenge they don't cost you money they are just simple things you can do and yeah if you're saving energy you're saving money as mm -hmm. well but the most important thing about the challenge is that it's fun Yes. You know, it's a team-based challenge. You're encouraging your team members to keep up the score because you'd like to win. People in Ireland love their competitions. But, yeah, it's educational without being too serious. Uh, so mm -hmm. I really would hope that uh, all your listeners can sign up for the Climate Heroes Challenge. And they can do that on climateheroes.ie. Although this involves simple actions, it uses powerful technology. Explain. Yeah, the Climate Heroes Challenge is based on an online platform. So uh, every team that registers does need to have a computer or a mobile phone. And that platform has been developed by our friends in Ducky. The, Ducky is a social enterprise based in Norway. And uh, they have this platform that we use. But it's very, very user-friendly. Uh, so any team signing up, you don't need more than a, an email address and a telephone number and a name. That's all the technology that you, you need or the technical knowledge that you need. It's a, it's a very powerful platform and it's based on the re most recent insights from climate science and from behavior change science. So it's a lovely uh, piece of technology that we are, are able to use here in Ireland. What was the reaction from the participants last year? I think an amazement. Yeah, we, we call it Climate Heroes because we want everybody to know that we all of us can be part of the solution on in our own on our own we're not going to be the solution to climate change but there's a lot of little solutions that we need and everybody can be you know a, a, an active participant in this and i i find it really inspiring to listen to uh, people's experiences because they all are amazed about how much of an impact positive impact they are each of us can have uh, and as I say, we by taking simple actions, it's not just about changing your own lifestyle. It's not just about saying that the solution to climate change is consumer behavior. Of course, we need systemic change, but the systemic change is going to be impossible without the underlying value change and the underlying behavior change that puts pressure on our politicians and on on the companies whose products we buy to to be more sustainable. So. Because sometimes people, individuals, will think, there's very little I can do. If I turn off a light for an extra 10 minutes a day, as far as the big picture is concerned, it's not really going to make a difference. But it really does. Exactly. You have to start somewhere. And we start, say, where you're at and start at what you can do. And the beauty of this thing is that it converts those actions into a measurable amount of CO2 emissions that you've saved. So how can participants know exactly how much they're saving? Each activity that they take part in is converted immediately on the platform into a certain amount of CO2 emissions saved. What did you learn from last year's competition? 
people in Ireland underestimate their own power to make a difference. And uh, I think many people feel disempowered by the scale and the complexity and the urgency of climate change. But we learned that people are actually delighted to be given an opportunity to see the difference that they can make. And I remember the first time we ran it, we had a smaller version of this in County Kildare. And there was a woman who said, I'd never seriously considered not driving to work because I just always assumed it was too far. But because of the climate challenge, I started walking to work and I realized it was only a little bit longer. Like instead of the 20 minutes by car, it was a 30 minute walk on foot. It's actually, uh, you can take a shortcut and you don't spend all that time standing in front of the traffic light and in the, in the traffic jam. So that she said to us, since doing your challenge, I've been continuing to walk to work. And that's the sort of example that we are looking for. That They're not mind-blowing revolutionary changes to your life. They're just small changes in the habits that we have. Because so much of our decisions in life are really about habits that we don't think about. What the impact of them is on other people or on, on the climate as such. And this is a great opportunity for people to experiment with alternatives and build new habits that are more sustainable. So how can people become involved? The Climate Heroes Challenge is free of charge. So all you need is a team and a team can be from anything from five to 50 people. And that then register that team on climateheroes.ie. That's the website. When you've registered there, we make contact with you. We go through how it operates, etc. what you need to do to get ready. We also provide a few uh, online webinars to, you know, help you explore some of the themes that uh, the challenge addresses. So it's very simple. Uh, thanks to Irish Aid, it's uh, free of charge for community groups all over Ireland. So just visit www.climateheroes.ie and we'll do the rest. That's great, Hans, and we'll put the same information up on our website. The best of luck with it. Thank you so much. And as Terry has said, you can find more details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, this next subject will be of interest to many of you because we are becoming more aware of the extent our well-being is connected to our environment. Scientists and policymakers are now using the term One Health for this. And with us in studio today is General Manager of AgriAware, Amy Gray. Amy and her colleagues have been looking specifically at the impact of birds on human health. Amy, you're very welcome to the programme. Hi, Derek. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your research. Um, Myself and my colleagues recently published an article on the relationship between birds and human health. Um, We've been working on this research for about two years, but the inception of the idea started probably a decade ago when I started in UCD. Um, These days, I work as the general manager in AgriAware, which is an Mm agri-food education body. And we're all about public engagement in science and in research related to the food system. Nile. Amy, I've been a bird watcher uh, for as long as I can remember, ever since I was a very, very small child. And I'm a firm believer that watching birds and being in nature certainly makes me feel better. It's hard for me to quantify it, but certainly I know that it reduces my stress. Uh, it makes me feel good about myself and it's a great way to d- get diversion in life as well. But from a more, I suppose, scientific basis, what do birds do for us? So my colleagues and I recently published an article um, entitled Birds and Human Health Pathways for a Positive Relationship. So what we did was essentially develop a new framework to explain how birds contribute to our health. And we've called these health services and categorised them into six specific categories to be able to describe exactly how they benefit us. What are those six different categories? 
I'll detail first the first category, which is psychological benefits. So an example of this in the psychological benefits area would be, like you said at the start, people enjoy listening to birds and there is actual science behind it to say that birds can make people feel calm after bird encounters. Stress levels are reduced and they make people feel joyful. So that would be the first category of psychological benefits. Then we look at the physiological benefits. There are many people across the world who rely on wild birds for their nutritional benefits. So that, of course, has a physiological logical benefit. The third category then is infectious disease risk reduction. So you can actually monitor wild bird populations to determine human disease risk. Um, The fourth category is tangible materials, so anything you can physically touch. So people might harvest birds for meat, they might harvest their eggs, their nests. A lot of this um, can actually relate to people's spiritual benefits that they derive for that. So birds can be used in spiritual rituals. So again, that's tangible materials. Then the next category after that is non-material goods. So this would be, say, bird watching or anything that doesn't involve extracting birds from their environment. And then the final category is related to ecosystem support services. So they would be the types of things that we're more used to, say, seed dispersal or pollination or pest control or any of these classical examples of how we know birds support our ecosystems. So really very diverse. There's lots of different things going on there. I'm sure that some of those must be easier to quantify than others. Some of them are quite intangible. How do you put, uh, let's say, a value on that or scoring on that benefit? So what we did is we looked at the One Health concept. So the One Health concept at its core, it identifies the interconnectedness between humans, animals and their ecosystems and their environment. So in order for one particular element or interface to be healthy, we have to look at the whole picture. So using this One Health concept, it recognises that we need to learn from each other and accept that there is a connection between these different elements. So One Health at its core encourages interdisciplinary action and it encourages collaboration and data sharing. So if you look at something like zoonotic disease, there is a very obvious link between humans and animals and the environment because, of course, with zoonotic diseases, that means that the disease is transferring from animals over to humans and it's spilling over into a different population. So you can naturally see that there's a connection there and there's a relationship that needs to be looked at. Um, So... This is kind of the idea that we borrowed to be able to explain how birds actually benefit our human health. And the categories that I illustrated earlier detail the health services across a multitude. Further to that, we had split it into direct relationships with ill health and indirect relationships with ill health. So say zoonotic disease, that's a direct relationship with ill health, as you can see that ill health transforms from being impacted by a disease. But then the more indirect side of things would be, say, um, how people, you know, the spiritual ritual and things that I was talking about. It's not naturally related to ill health. But of course, you have to allow people to express freedom of spirituality or religion or whatever makes them feel good in their daily um, lives for their well-being. Is there a negative side there as well? Like, could there be in some way these, this be some negative sort of mentality for people? Some of these spiritual um, rituals and so on are not necessarily always beneficial. Uh, I think it depends on, it definitely depends on an individual. And that is where there is difficulty when straightforward trying to explain how birds benefit human health. Um, if you, we did... Um, acknowledge that there's disservices from birds and specifically health disservices. 
But and, and one example of this would be, say, avian influenza, the spillover from humans or from birds to humans. It's rare, but it does happen. So we did acknowledge those disservices. And I think maybe you were also asking about whether or not it's good to allow people to express certain spiritual elements if they're going to be negative for birds. Is that what you were asking? Uh, that's an aspect of it, yes. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's something that's very important to address. So one example of, say, the spiritual benefits um, that we would have identified and, be, and we categorised into tangible materials would be, say, people harvesting birds for uh, traditional medicine purposes. So naturally they're extracting birds or their nests or their eggs from the environment, which is counterproductive for conservation. But you can't necessarily just say that people shouldn't do that because they should be allowed freedom to express their own spiritual beliefs. So it can get very complicated when trying to create a conservation argument when we're well aware that that is negative or counterproductive for conservation. So there's a lot of um, intricacies at work. And again, that's why the One Health concept is so important because naturally we in the West maybe would put put bans in place and say you shouldn't extract birds or you shouldn't do this, especially if they're endangered species. But then again, at the same time, we're probably moving more into a sustainable use Mm. argument these days. So to sustainably use biodiversity and wildlife rather than just restricting people from using them because that's a lot more realistic and it's probably going to get us a lot further in the biodiversity crisis than just putting bans in place. I suppose that approach as well, with getting more buy-in from local communities and from nations as well, it leads to, if it's unright, it leads to habitat protection and the promotion of biodiversity. Absolutely. And that is, that's kind of the basis for um, this um, article that we published. So the idea came about from having multiple conversations with friends and with colleagues. And how do you actually get public buy-in? How do you get people to care about biodiversity? And if you can go as far as to say they're good for our health, that's a very powerful argument, not only for the individual, but for policymakers as well, because we've moved very much into a problem-solving type structure. And even these days with research, unless you're solving a problem, you're unlikely to be able to get funding. Um, And that is also due to the fact that we are in a climate crisis, we are in a biodiversity crisis, and we need to use our resources very wisely. Um, So that's why research like this is very important, because you can actually use these arguments as tools to promote conservation rather than just citing, you know, the greater good. People used to talk all the time about, you know, you should protect biodiversity just because you should. And often for the individual Mm. in particular... That's not strong enough. You have to know why you're protecting it. Exactly. And that is kind of the crux of of why this research is so important. Uh, Was the research your idea or did somebody say to go out and do this because we need this in our armoury? It developed out of, I guess, probably 10 years ago when I did my master's in UCD in the School of Agriculture. Um, My master's was in biodiversity conservation and I cared a lot about biodiversity, but I would have a lot of friends who would care very little and... Mm. I just went about, um, I guess, the social science side of things and behavioural change and how do you actually get people to change behaviours and how you do that is getting individuals to have meaning behind their actions. Did you find it frustrating that your friends didn't care as much as you did? Yes, absolutely. Um, The greater good argument is good enough for me, but it's not good enough for everyone. Well, Um, you're a scientist, you see. You understand it. Exactly. And I currently work in the area of public engagement. And although my background, yes, is straightforward science, 
I mostly now work in the area of trying to translate that scientific knowledge into simple um, simple concepts and simple ideas so that everybody can understand. So what's so important to me about science and research is that because, because it's publicly funded in many instances, the public has the right to know. And I think a lot of people can kind of, you know, throw their hands up and say, you know, I'm not that interested. But it depends on how you're putting that research out there. You need to be able to explain it to people yeah. in layman's terms to get them to care. Otherwise, well, you're doing a very good job. I appreciate that, Derek. Thank and we're you. delighted to have you here. Richard? Yes, the great divide between the arts and the sciences. It seems to me that on this subject, the arts win hands down. Derek, cast your mind back to when we went to The Hague to interview the curator of the Van Gogh Museum yes. about wheat field with crows. Mm-hmm. Think of what that painting would look like had Van Gogh not put in the crows. The thing would be empty and dead. And if we exclude nature and exclude birds and their sounds, the place becomes impoverished. We become depressed immediately. It's Even if not everybody poetry. likes the sound the crows make. <laughs> uh, no, it's but the imagery. It's there. Pres- they're there. They're represented. It, it is. It's, it's the presence. We're not alone. They are with us. They're a company. There's something like that. And the great poets knew that. You'd think of Keats's Nightingale and Shelley's Skylark and musicians too. The first uh, On Hearing the First Cuckoo in Spring by Friedrich Delius. Or Beethoven felt he required to put in the the cuckoo, the quail and the nightingale into his pastoral symphony. It is terribly important. Nature, these things aren't, birds are not birds to us. They are archetypes. They are features of our minds. We have transformed them into great cultural and psychological icons, I believe. Richard, it sounds like to me that you would be happy with the greater good argument and we should protect them because we like them and that's enough for you. But I might just use an example to kind of illustrate how when birds left a gap within the ecosystem, it caused a a real human health crisis. So some of you might be familiar with the Indian vulture crisis. So back in the 90s, um, vultures who were obligate scavengers, that's how they get their nutrition, they scavenge. Um, they were scavenging on dead cattle that had been treated with a drug called diclofenac. And diclofenac is an anti-inflammatory drug that when this, when the scavengers consumed the carcasses, um, they were poisoned and they died. So ultimately there was a collapse in the Indian vulture population. And what happened at the same time as this is that medical doctors noticed that there was an increase in human rabies incidences. They didn't know that these were connected at the time, but as it transpired, they were able to paint a picture of exactly how this happened. And what happened was when the vultures were gone, there was a gap in that scavenging behaviour. And what came in to fill that gap were stray dogs that were infected with rabies. Naturally, when you have humans interacting more with stray dogs, there's going to be an increase in dog bites. And this then led to an increase in human rabies incidences. So this was a completely unforeseen externality of the loss of vultures. Um, And it really nicely illustrates how birds can have a real impact on disease and ill health. And on top of that as well, it, it strengthens the argument for scavengers as a whole, which are usually a group that are underappreciated. You, you mentioned that they're underappreciated. I think that's exactly the phrase for it because I think birds are very often taken for granted. We get these benefits, especially ecosystem benefits and agri-environment benefits. We just 
take them, you know, as given because they're mostly for free. I, I would assume, for example, that birds must do a huge service throughout the world in reducing deaths from malaria, for example, by eating so many vast quantities of mosquitoes. If they were to disappear, we would have a catastrophe on our hands. Is that a big barrier? Do you think we have to find a way to make people care more about birds and wider biodiversity? Definitely. And I think this is a a good basis. So these six categories that we have presented, so it would allow other researchers to potentially explore other taxes, maybe biodiversity as a whole. So we definitely think of this as a a starting point and um, helping other researchers to contribute in this particular space. Because as I illustrated with the Indian vulture crisis, we really often don't know the impact that biodiversity or birds in this instance actually have until they're gone and then it's too late. Thankfully, the Indian vultures, their populations have recovered, but this is not always the case. Um, so definitely there's, there's space for so much more work in this particular area. Richard, what do you think of Amy's research? Well, I think it's excellent. It's very necessary. It's, it's, it, we have to develop it further. And this is a terribly important subject. It's crucial that we, we develop this to its fullest extent so that people realise what they're missing. We are now killing the world. The world is heading back to an inorganic state. If we keep going like this, it will be a dead planet one day again. Nuclear weapons and, and over-exploitation of resources and global warming. And the whole thing is heading downhill. We need to arrest that and birds and animals will help us. Our appreciation of them, a response to them. will. They are propagandists for uh, change. You're nodding your head in agreement there, Amy. I am. Um, you were making me, make, making me think a lot about um, yeah, how do we leverage conservation? And I guess if we take it back to the science and the, the work that we were looking at, um, a lot of the challenges lie with you know, getting scientific consensus on whether or not birds or biodiversity actually contribute to human health. So one of the areas that is quite difficult is psychological health. So what we were talking about earlier, birds um, evoking positive feelings, making people feel happy and this having a a positive effect on their mental health. A lot of this research is self-reported. So it's coming from an individual who's saying, I feel joyful after a bird But they did some work on that during COVID, as I understand it. The RSPB in Britain conducted a survey ahead of their big garden bird watch and they found that two thirds of the people polled, something like 64 or 5% felt watching birds and hearing bird song added to their enjoyment of life, particularly during that stressful period. Definitely. And there is absolute merit there for an awful lot of people. But I guess we have to be mindful that not every single individual feels the same way. And that was something that kind of came out in the research as well. So there would be disservices related to certain birds. So say crows or corvids, hmm. they don't make a very pleasant sound. So can we wholly accept that all birds and encounters with them are positive for our mental health? And It just comes to that kind of self-reported area. Each individual is different and we can't completely, without reservation, say that yes, they do. And that creates difficulty. Well, you started the conversation. Absolutely. I mean, I think a good example of that would be while a lot of people report enjoying the dawn chorus, there are some people there who hate being woken up by the birds first thing. <laughs> That's and it true. has a negative yeah, effect on them. Yeah, I forgot um, about that. And of course, we're very biased on our programme because we're such dawn chorus fans. But I think, you know, I think birds are a very good place to start here because they're one of the most accessible forms of wildlife that we have. People tend to be more well disposed towards birds in general than to, let's say, the creepy crawlies and so on. But is there also a danger there that, but it, you know, in trying to 
commodify nature in this way or trying to portray it in that in that manner that it's much harder to do with with species like ants or beetles or bacteria um you know what would you think of that yeah, definitely. The other people in other disciplines looking at different taxa have a greater challenge, I think, than mm. birds. Birds are very well liked and very mm. well appreciated. And also for myself, the study that we did was, you know, a, a scoping study of the literature. So that meant that we were using a lot of secondary data to come up with our arguments. But it meant that birds are very well researched. There's a lot of research put into birds. So we had a lot of literature to look at, whereas with other disciplines it might be more difficult to look at the health benefits if there's less research. Well, it's great to have you in, Amy. Thank you very much indeed. And more details, as always, can be found on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. We're going to go to Cork now and say hello to Jim Wilson. I believe, Jim, you met two young scientists recently? Derek, I absolutely did. And it was a a great pleasure uh, to meet them. These were two special scientists. I know their father very well. It was Aideen and Kieran Farrell. Their father, Mike, was principal of St. Joseph's Boys National School here in Cove. But they're going to school over in Passage West in St. Peter's Secondary School. And uh, they actually created great excitement here in the Lower Harbour recently because they did a project up in Harpers Island, you know, those of you who are regular listeners to the programme will know that Harpers Island is a fantastic nature reserve here in Cork Harbour. Well, these two scientists decided they wanted to do a project up there. And they did the project. It was on the birds that roost there, you know, that come and rest at high tide. And uh, they entered it in the biological and ecological sciences section of the BT Young Scientist competition. And the project was on uh, roosting birds in Harpers Island. So I went and I spoke with Aideen and Kieran Farrell and uh, they told me all about their project. Our project was called Just One Leg to Stand On. Do varying weather conditions affect the energy conservation of roosting birds? Yeah. And, w- and what's that in plain English? Like what, <laughs> what exactly were you trying to find out? So basically we were trying to find out whether like varying weather conditions, so we, it was like temperature, wind speed and precipitation, seeing how that affected how the roosting birds, the birds at rest, uh, especially the water birds, um, like in, conserved their heat and energy. So we mainly looked at two behaviours, which was standing on one leg or unipedal roosting and beak tucking. Um, because we researched that those were like definitely like they used that to conserve their heat and their energy and so we were just seeing if like the different weather conditions would have an effect and which ones that's I mean yeah. most people are, have seen birds on one leg yeah you kind of uh, think of flamingos you, like you do yeah. exactly and they're doing exactly the same thing yeah. there and I used to often get lots of phone calls from people saying there's a one-legged oyster catcher <laughs> you know that, yeah. that they're all losing their legs and it yeah. wasn't that as you rightly yeah. said you can't there. you can't see the other leg at all because they took it right off up under their feathers to like conserve the heat in it Wow. So, yeah. yeah. How did you do the research? What, what exactly did you have to do in the field, so to speak? Uh, well, uh, there's a place up uh, up near our house, um, Harpers Island, and it's like um, it's a place where a lot of water birds go at high tide to roost there because there's nowhere else in the harbour that's like above water. So um, they come there to roost, and so we went there at high, di- high tide, and we had a telescope, um, and what one member would. Um, observe the the birds whether they're standing on one leg or two and whether they have their beaks tucked or not and then the other person would um keep a tally of that uh those results 
Oh yeah, and we did so, it like with like so we go through each species, so each flock of each species. So it was like mainly uh, black-tailed godwits, black-headed gulls, curlews, and lapwings, and then we also recorded a few other species like that were commonly there. And so we kind of went through each species and like recorded their roosting positions. And we are also we recorded the weather, so like um, the precipitation, the the wind speed, the wind direction, and the temperature. And then we uh, got the the tide times, uh, like when it was high tide, the like height of the tide. Mm-hmm. So um, that gave us the the data that we needed then to uh, put the, all the data together and see what the correlation. Very good. Was. And and uh, one thing I didn't ask actually, what school were you representing? <laughs> uh, St Peter's Community School in Passagest. All oh, right. So just across the river. Yeah, exactly. So you're living here in Rushbrook, and uh, you get do you get the ferry every morning? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So so you're used to the sea and, yeah, and, the, exactly. and the wet so and the water. Going, yeah. going to school by boat, like excellent, <laughs> excellent, excellent. And uh, did you have to fight over who did the looking and who did the recording? Well, to be honest, like when you're looking through the telescope, and if the wind is blowing in your face, because you're, you're in like a hide, but like obviously it's open, like there's like a little window where you look through and it's open so your eyes would get tired and they'd start tearing up from the wind so we'd swap over quite a lot like because your your vision would get a bit blurry like but um Kieran did most a lot of the like looking really uh-huh. when he was there because um my eyesight isn't the greatest so. okay but um also because of the TY, the times that we had to go during school i Kieran wouldn't come out because he's in third year right. so um so i did the recording then wow so then so you you had all your your data. How, how many visits did you make, roughly? Uh, we did twenty. Twenty and twenty-one, ho- I think. And one day we didn't get any data. Oh, and, um, and how, ma- how many hours were, were you, were you, would you have put in? Per, roughly per visit, how long? Uh, usually around an hour. Right. Could Maybe be forty-five 40, minutes though. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. um, we counted about two thousand birds over the over the whole thing we recorded. Yeah. Wow. So, well, and uh, did, so did you go at? different times of the tide or only at high tide? It was like as close as we could get to the highest tide but like obviously we couldn't go after dark so we wouldn't see anything yeah. and also Harper's Island closes uh, in November it was after four yeah. so we just like so sometimes we'd go at three like it wouldn't be quite high tide but mm-hmm. it would be close enough if there'd be birds mm-hmm. there like mm-hmm. so. so then when you have, you have all the data gathered yeah and yeah. you're backed up and everything I presume so you don't yeah. have to lose all that value We ended data. up actually losing um, <gasps> afterwards so I had it all written down in a notebook and then we, and then I put it onto the project diary, which was like on Word. And then we put it all into an Excel sheet, so we were saved in the Excel sheet, so it was fine. But when I was editing the project diary for the judges, like a couple, like a week before, like we went up to Dublin, it, there were only four pages of it left, and it used to be like thirty pages long. Well, we had but we, all, yeah, we, we had, had all, we had all the data so. already, okay. so it didn't matter too much. But we didn't have the project diary anymore, so and you, luckily we didn't need it, so we were okay. So, so whose <laughs> whose fault was that? I think it was Word. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just the dodgy computer or something. Excellent, yeah. e- excellent. So. So right, you have the data. The, apart from that little scare there yeah. towards the end, but at that stage, but at that stage, we had all our data gathered and everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was fine. Yeah, and and who uh, did you get any help with the analysis? Yeah, so we did need help for that, alright, because like it was we hadn't really done too much that. Yeah. But we'd heard about like correlations and stuff, correlation between two variables. So um, we got on to uh, Dervla Colnan, who's like she has a bachelor of arts in. Um, psychology yeah. and she has a master of sciences in human anatomy but through that anyway she had access to this software called SPSS software 
and she was able to take our data which we put into an Excel sheet and then the software generated correlation analyses and multiple regression analyses which we then analysed. Holy goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we also got some help from um, the people at Harpers Island so we got the loan of a telescope and we got help with um, like editing and like editing our report book and our analyses from Tom Gittings who's an ecologist and um, we also got like when we were up there like a lot of the the bird watchers who were there anyway gave us some advice and stuff so it was nice that's cool yeah yeah Yeah. and i also contacted some like ornithologists around the world and stuff and for like background research so then so you had your project done um what did you learn from doing the project uh well like we didn't really know much like we did know a bit about birds and like we but um have an interest like like, yeah we've we've gained like a bit of a yeah, we we know how to like identify the birds and um, kind of like yeah. everything about them really. Like I, yeah. I didn't Not know much about them, but we, I didn't we know, know much about them at yeah. the start. But I learned so much then throughout yeah. the whole thing. Like loads, not even related to the project, just. Yeah, and like talking to like the more experienced bird watchers who were there as well, it was really interesting. What what were your results? Were, were, uh, so, um, what we, happened? Did they, were they all having <laughs> us on by tucking up this leg? Was it just because they felt like doing it? or was So it? Uh, basically they, we had three main findings and the regression analyses basically tell us like what variables are the ones that definitely impact like another one. So the main one we had was like the main, it had a very strong correlation and it was very accurate and that was temperature and black-headed gulls talk, standing on one leg. So it basically told me, told us that in lower temperatures, uh, they stood on one leg more to conserve more heat. Ah. So that was like in keeping with our hypothesis. You, you have to mention surely some of your teachers in the school. Do you? They, <laughs> so, yeah, are they so, any good over there in passage? <laughs> I know they're not as good as the teachers in Cove. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so our science teacher, Mr. Hurley, was in May 1 helping us with our project and he was great. So. Yeah, and is, is there a culture of doing uh, the BT Young Scientist projects in in Passage West, or, well, or how, yeah. how how did you how did you get into to actually doing so it? So basically, I did it two years ago when I was in second year um, with another friend of mine, um, but it was online that year, and we really wanted to come back and like go up to the exhibition. So the but so the time we were in it two years ago, and then I think uh, someone went up maybe ten years ago um, from our school. But that was the last time. Really yeah, we've no real history so of it in our school, so we're we could start. We could start. Wow. Yeah. So, so you're trailblazers, exactly. Right? Yeah. You're, I mean, you're you're setting a very yeah. high bar there now. Like you know, you, yeah. you you won the competition. Yeah, we did. Out of over fifty schools. I think so. Yeah, and I think we counted them up the amount that, like in our category. Yeah, so and and 50. what was it like when you were up there waiting for the results to be called out? Ah, uh, well, we didn't expect at all. Like yeah. no anything, like. After our last judge, we were like, no chance, no chance. Yeah, we didn't we feel it went well at all, to be honest. <laughs> and we got like yeah. a massive shock then when our names were yeah. called and we went off. So. Yeah, and yeah, we felt a like shock. a lot of the ones around us seemed better than ours. Yeah, we but, felt like... <laughs> but then we didn't have the whole story because we were just seeing their posters. Yeah. Like, but, um, so it was yeah, a bit but, of a shocker. But you obviously ticked more of the yeah. boxes and I there was a lot yeah, of boxes. Yeah. Was and there? the yeah. data, I think, they were very impressed by... Yeah. The data yeah. they, we had there, they're like uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think many others had that kind of data, mm-hmm. and that's that's what the yeah. judges were main. They're they're um, yeah. commenting a lot about the uh, first the one said that we had a good idea, and but we had the data to back it up with, which a lot of people they have really good ideas, but they might not have the data to back it up with. 
Brilliant. So that's they like to vote ours anyway. Well, listen, as I say, congratulations again. Thanks. Really fantastic. A great, <laughs> great privilege to be able to chat to you today. Thank and you. I mean, we can hear the, the, the harbour sounds in the background, <laughs> yeah. but the yeah. birds still go about their business in this fantastic harbour. Yeah. And uh, you, you've just added another piece in the jigsaw to our understanding of the wetland birds here in yeah. Cork Harbour. So, Kiran and Aideen, mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you both for talking to me today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. More details on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Ladies and gentlemen of the listening public, what you've just heard is our future, and it sounds bright. Now, earlier this year, plant lovers across Britain and Ireland headed out in their thousands for the annual New Year plant hunt of the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. Now, the records these citizen scientists collected tell a story of how Irish and British wild plants are responding to a changing climate. Earlier, Enony Lana spoke with Bridget Keane of the BSBI's Ireland office. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? So, Bridget, you're the Ireland officer for the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, which is a great title altogether. In the 70s, I used to be the Irish secretary of the Botanical Society of the British Isles Irish Regional Branch. So I'm very glad we have parity nowadays, parity of esteem. And one of the things that society does every year is to see what plants are in bloom at the same time at the turn of the year between the last days of the old year and the first days of the new year. So did it happen again this year and were you out doing it yourself? I was out doing it myself. I was in Stonehill with our local group um, and we went out for a lovely walk and a pub lunch and another lovely walk and we recorded 20 species in bloom. So where did you go? I mean did you go out to people's gardens where they cultivated plants or were you allowed to go into gardens or were you only to look at wildflowers or once you were walking along in a wild place you could count anything that was in bloom? So basically, you can you can go wherever you like, but it doesn't include gardens. So any any place along the road or to the beach or any area at all, but we wouldn't do it completely in gardens. However, if we saw plants that were usually in gardens but had escaped, we would be able to include those in our lists. So this was then all added up and counted over the whole of Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland. And were there many species in bloom actually at that time of year? Over 600, I think, species across the whole region in bloom. And in Ireland, we had 228 species recorded. 228 species of plants were in bloom in Ireland. Now, tell me, were they coming or going? In other words, were they plants that were in bloom during the year and hadn't stopped blooming, that they continued on longer than they should? Or were they early plants that were blooming earlier, where they shouldn't be out till March or April, but they were out early? In other words, are they coming or going? Are they ones that hung on too long or are they new arrivals? Or were there, was there some of each lot there? Well, we had some of each of those categories. Um, So just over half were things that were kind of hanging on from last summer, what we're calling autumn stragglers. So they will be things like yarrow and ragwort and perhaps buttercups. So just over half of them were those species. Um, Just over a quarter were what we call springtime specialists, so things like um, celandine, primrose, those kind of things that would normally be flowering in spring and perhaps we were seeing them just a tinsy bit early. Um, and then about one-fifth were things that we would be flowering either all year or specifically flowering in the winter, so maybe winter heliotrope or ivy, um, and then things like daisy and dandelion that would be really you'd find all year round. 
Yeah, so they were in different categories. So which was the most surprising to see that half of them hadn't died back? In other words, that the winter in November and December wasn't cold enough to finish them off and give them a rest, that they were still flowering because it hadn't been cold enough for them to stop. Was that the most surprising thing? Well, that's certainly the one that might give us the most clues about what our climate is doing, because the fact that we didn't have very many frosts in that time um, and the weather was generally quite mild, that meant that some of these things would normally have kind of given up and died off. But this year, they just can't kept going right through. I mean, we did have a cold snap just before the New Year plant hunt, and I think a few of those things went then. So, oh, this might have been even bigger if we hadn't had that cold snap. Um, but yeah, we certainly that was the most interesting observation, I think. And people are always thinking when they see flowers in that, oh, this is the earliest ever. Things like, say, the lesser celandine, that lovely yellow um, flower that has a member of the buttercup family that has the heart-shaped leaves that I always tell people is out for Valentine's Day because it has heart-shaped oh. leaves. But that you, you have that on your list. Now, it, that's obviously earlier than it should be. So do you compare things from year to year? Were the early ones earlier? Did you find ones this year that were even earlier? Or was it, is it par for the course what you get the early ones? I mean, that's a bit of a difficult question in some ways because every year you get a few things and, and obviously different individuals might flower a little bit earlier or a little bit later. So it's kind of difficult to make a, a really sweeping conclusion. Lesser Celandine made it onto our top 20 for the first time this year, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but in general, I think with the spring flowering plants, a lot of them will flower a little bit early in some years, So, and I think 13 years isn't really quite long enough to draw these big conclusions. But the indication is that a few of the spring flowers may be a little bit earlier. But, I mean, it can be a bit misleading too, because sometimes we see things like daffodils in flower, and we might think... Gosh, that's really early. Um, but some varieties actually prefer to flower early. Some are bred to flower a little bit earlier. So, it, you know, you have to be careful what conclusions you draw there. I've been thinking of things like dandelions, for example, which are so important for bumblebees. The bumblebees have certainly been seen around in January. So it's good to know that there are dandelions around for them because we tend to think of the dandelions as not coming out until March. But if the bees are out, we do need the early flowers there as well or otherwise there won't be any pollen for them. So if, if the flowers are early and the bees are early, then there's a whole shift to being early altogether. There is an indication that it's going that way, certainly. Is this going to be written up? I mean, was this the same as it was in Britain? Do the Botanical Society write it all up as a report? Or how do people find out the whole contents of the list? So the whole survey has been written up. Um, and if anyone wants to have a look at it, if they go onto the BSBI website, all the results are there. And you can actually look at the results just for Ireland. You can look at the top 20 species recorded in Ireland over the last, in fact, more than top 20, over the last seven or eight years. Um, and that's quite interesting to have a look at and, and also see how many more species have been recorded. But of course, part of that is to do with more people joining in the plant hunt because it's a really good fun thing to do and it's really catching on across the country. Listen, Bridget, it's great talking to you. This is great to hear that the BSBI is doing so well and great to hear that we're getting all this scientific information to put together so we can see what's actually happening with the world. Thank you so much, Bridget. Thank you very much, Jaina. Lovely to talk to you. Details, as always, on our website, rte.ie forward slash money. That's all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Terry Flanagan, Aina Nilana, Richard Collins and Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating, and our researcher, Michelle Brown. Do get in touch with us. Email mooney at rte.ie. Until next week, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) 